some of you are on, uh, I'll just make a quick announcement, some of you are on our, most of you are probably on our mailing list. Today we sent out a, a brief uh, news flash of a, a newsletter, which we've never done before. And if people have read the New York Times today and other major international news, the uh, International Energy and Atomic uh, Group, part of the UN in, in Austria, in Vienna, Today, confirm that Iran has processed enough nuclear materials. I'm not a nuclear expert or a physicist, or, uh, but it's enough to create, they have the materials now to create a bomb. And it doesn't mean that they have the capacity to make a bomb or to deliver a bomb, but they have now some of the materials, needed materials to create a bomb. So this is another benchmark that has passed. And it's uh, as somebody studying anti-Semitism in the contemporary context, I find it astounding that the world is silent. And, and we are, as a, collectively as students, as scholars, as leaders, as intellectuals, we're by and large silent. And we are, I don't know if it's the postmodernist malaise, but all of us are sort of deconstructing away the problem. And it's, the problem is only getting worse. And I hope as a scholar that people will take interest in this as, in terms of the intellectual research and responding to it. And I think as concerned citizens, not only responding to genocidal anti-Semitism, but the lack of this group that is uh, bent on destroying Israel, the lack of removing citizenship and basic human rights from other groups, religious minorities, the gay community, um, dissidents, and it's just unbelievable that we intellectuals in the West have basically acquiesced to this challenge. And I hope maybe with this passing of another benchmark, we'll have uh, responses. So, in light of this, um, it's really an honor to introduce to you today Paul Igansky. Today he'll be speaking about the title of his lecture is entitled, Playing the Nazi Card, Anti-Semitic Discourse Against Israel. Uh, professor Gansky is with the is a professor of criminology at Lancaster University. He was formerly at the University of Essex for many years, and he researched methods and uh, methodology in the area of crime and human rights and cultural criminology. He is on the editorial board of Journals of the Patterns of Prejudice, a, a well-known and uh, old established journal in London. His areas of research include hate, violence human rights, racial stratification, and equal opportunities. He's been a visiting scholar. This is a strange noise today. It's the second time. He's been a visiting scholar at the Brunswick Center for Research on Conflict and Violence at Northeastern University in Boston. He was appointed as a civil, uh, civil society fellow at the Institute for Jewish and Policy Research in London. And just interesting as a, a side story, one of the first meetings I had when uh, we had the idea of establishing ISGAP, which was the precursor to YISA. ISGAP is the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy. And it so happened that I was in London and I met with Paul and Barry Cosman at the center. And they were one of the first people who I spoke to about establishing the center. And they were one of the first people who were very encouraging me, uh, to encourage me greatly to try and establish it. So it's, it's wonderful that you're here giving a seminar and it wasn't so many years ago. Um, Paul has also served on the editorial board of Sociology, and he's written many newspaper articles and magazine articles uh, for the International Herald Tribune, the Jewish Forward, Haaretz, the Jewish Chronicle in London, and the list goes on. He's been an expert uh, 
an analyst for the BBC, for Time magazine, and for the Sydney, Sydney Morning Herald uh, newspaper. Paul received his BA at Goldsmiths College, a master's from Manchester University, and he did his PhD in social policy at the London School of, uh, of Economics. He's written widely and uh, just hold up a brand new book off the press. If people are interested, we have some material. It's called Hate Crimes and the City. It's a brand new book that was just published by Paul Lee Press. Um, he's written Criminology, a Sociological Introduction, and he wrote an important book in uh, 2003 on the new anti-Semitism. Uh, he and his colleagues in London were one of the first people actually writing on this new anti-Semitism. So it's really it's an honor that you're here. Thank you for that terrific introduction. I just wish my mother was here to, uh, to, to hear that. Thank you. Uh, perhaps uh, if, I, if I just say one or two things about myself before I, I start. Uh, Charles mentions I was uh, a civil society fellow at the, uh, at the Institute for Jewish Policy Research. Uh, that was between uh, 2000 and, and 2005, uh, which was an honorary position, um, but I, I directed their civil society research programme. Um, I think I was the only gen file um, um, involved with the Institute for Jewish Policy Research. And uh, I left in two th I resigned my fellowship in, in 2005. Um, um, because of various complicated uh, communal politics over, over the Institute. And uh, perhaps if you want to draw me out in the discussion, uh, I, can, I will say more about that. Uh, and the presentation that uh, I'm uh, going to give to you today has also not been immune um, from politics. And if I can just, just explain. Um, uh, this uh, uh, presentation is being uh, given not quite in Chatham House rules, uh, a video is being being made of it, um, but my uh, sponsors. Um, I'm going to talk about some commissioned research, um, but the uh, my sponsors have said that uh, I can't name them at this point until everything goes public. Uh, the video won't be online until until everything goes public, and uh, I can't put a paper online until everything goes public. So um, you will have to uh, hang on my words today, if if that's okay. If you forgive me for that. And finally, um, I have a script in, in front of me, uh, but don't worry, I'm not going to read it all out. It's a script for a two-hour presentation. Uh, Charles suggested to me I might want to try 30, 30 minutes. Or <laughs> well, 40 minutes. Okay. <laughs> and um, so, uh, towards the end of my presentation, I will just refer to my scripts, because I've got some complicated twists and turns, and it's helpful if I can remember them and keep on message, but the early part of, the, of, of my presentation, I'll be off script. So, so that's how it will go. But when you see me turn to the script, if it does sound as I'm reading out, please wave at me or say something, because as you'll know, there's nothing more boring than, than that. So I'll begin. Does, does that sound okay to you, if I, if I make a start? Okay. Well, the starting point for, for my presentation is just to talk about uh, the commissioning of this, of this research. And um, I can't uh, mention at this point who has commissioned and sponsored this particular research project. But this, uh, this particular research project that I'm going to talk to you about uh, follows on from uh, these two particular pieces of work. 
Uh, first of all, you might have heard about the, uh, the all-parliamentary inquiry into anti-Semitism that was held uh, in the UK in 2005-2006. That report on the left was published in 2006, and I was one of the people um, uh, who gave uh, expert testimony uh, before the MPs uh, to that uh, inquiry, and um, I gave testimony on anti-Semitic incidents. And also, interestingly, uh, not being Jewish myself, I've also been targeted, um, been the target of uh, anti-Semitic incidents because people assume that I'm, that I'm Jewish for various reasons. Again, if you want to draw me out on that in the discussion afterwards, there's, there's plenty I could say about that. Now, in that report of the All Parliamentary Inquiry, one of the key chapters in, in that report um, uh, concerned anti-Semitic discourse, and, and the inquiry drew attention to a number of key themes of anti-Semitic discourse and called for more research, more understanding in, in the area. The second report uh, has, was published this year, just a few months ago, as anti-Semitic anti -Semitic discourse in 2007. It covers all the 2007 calendar year. Published by the Community Security, Security Trust. Um, have, have people heard of that the British organisation? Um, it's uh, a communal organisation uh, that's primarily concerned with defensive measures around synagogues, uh, Jewish schools, communal facilities, and, and so on. They normally produce an annual report of anti-Semitic incidents and analysis of anti-Semitic incidents. For the first time uh, this year, they've produced this anti-Semitic discourse report, which takes the analysis from the parliamentary inquiry much further, going to many more themes. And my work follows on from these, whereas those first two are largely describing the problem of anti-Semitic discourse. My task has been to analyse the problem and um, propose some policy solutions for it. So that's what I'm going to present to you in the next 30 minutes. Does that sound reasonable? For me to continue? Okay, thank you. Well, I'm focusing on one uh, dominant style of anti-Semitic discourse, one dominant theme that's um, called playing the Nazi card. And in beginning to, to talk about that theme, I'd just like to, to introduce it by thinking about three issues that, um, that concern us in terms of the analysis. First of all, there's the problem of, of defining anti-Semitism. And um, as you'll know, there's no textbook definition of anti-Semitism. It's, as, as with all concepts, it's a contested concept. But there is some clustering of, of agreement now by, by national uh, governments and Jewish communal organisations against around the um, European Union Monitoring Centre, now the, uh, called the Fundamental Agency for Fundamental Rights in Europe, around the working definition of anti-Semitism. And are some of you familiar with that, with that definition? And in that definition, um, they argue that um, one of the features, one of the defining characteristics of anti-Semitism may be, much of the definition is fudged, um, may be and can be the drawing of parallels between the Israeli state and Nazi Germany. So this, this definition that's now semi-official um, is recognising that such parallels can be anti-Semitic. Um, I would argue, though, that labelling uh, the anti-Semitic discourse um, as anti-Semitic 
And some of you in, in the uh, discussion afterwards uh, might take contention with me about this when I try to present uh, the early thinking about this uh, to the Board of Deputies of British Jews. Uh, I didn't get much further than this next point before I had interruptions and, and then we got into a discussion and question and answer session from, from the audience. One of the key arguments that, that I'm making is that much of the debate around anti-Semitism and contemporary anti-Semitism has resulted in an intellectual cul-de-sac of claim and counterclaim. <coughs> and uh, you may or may not agree with me about this. That uh, the, the problem of labelling has taken us down into a discursive dead end, um, for which there seems to be little way out. And in this research, I've been looking for a discursive way out of this intellectual cul-de-sac. And I think that we have lined up over the debate of contemporary anti-Semitism, critics and their detractors. And uh, we have this uh, cul-de-sac, a war of words about the meaning of anti-Semitism. And I'll say a bit more about that in my presentation. <coughs> Instead, what I'm trying to do in this research is shift to the consequences of anti-Semitic discourse. So rather than labelling and defining the problem anti-Semitism, which I argue is problematic, to moving beyond the labelling and definition to looking at the consequences. And that's the shift that I'm trying, trying to make. And I think many people are still stuck in this cul-de-sac of labelling and naming the problem, which really isn't going to get, get us too far. Now, I'd like to um, just, before I proceed, talk about what I mean by discourse, because there are various uh, interpretations of it, and don't worry, I'm not going to go into Foucault and give you um, um, a very uh, deep definition of it. The notion of discourse that I'm going to use represents communicative action. Communicative action, and that's communication expressed in speech, communication expressed in visual symbols, all sorts of visual symbols, such as graffiti, daubings, artwork, cartoon caricatures, and other forms of visual expression. So, I'm using the term discourse uh, to represent communicative action of uh, visual and oral forms. Does, does that make sense to you? It seemed to come out of my mouth a little convoluted, but it does seem to make sense. Okay. Well, with this preparatory work, I can now get into the heart of my analysis. What does playing the Nazi card involve? I'm sure this will be uh, familiar to all of you, uh, what I'm talking about, but you might not have articulated it exactly in the terms that I'm, I'm putting it to you. And here I will read through my, through my script, where playing the Nazi card refers to the use of Nazi or related terms or symbols, Nazism, Hitler, swastikas, etc., in relation to Jews, Israel, Zionism, or aspects of the Jewish experience. So it's using the word Nazi or Nazi symbolism in relation to Jews, Israel, Zionism. And I'm sure you'll be familiar with uh, many instances of this. It's usually targeted against Jews individually or collectively, and for the purposes of the argument that I want to put to you out, the consequences, shifting the debate onto the consequences, argue that it scratches deep wounds by invoking painful collective memory of the Holocaust. More often than not, 
Playing the Nazi card involves hurtful and explicit insults and abuse. But, and this, this is the contentious and problematic issue, provocative comparisons between the brutal and genocidal actions of the Nazis and the policies and practices of the Israeli state. And, as I said a few moments ago, in, my def in, in how I'm interpreting discourse, playing the Nazi card manifests in words uttered in speech, or in writing, or in visual representations such as artwork, drawings, caricatures, cartoons, graffitis, daubing, scratches, visual expressions such as a Nazi salute, or the clicking of heels. And I'm sure you all know what I mean by these, by this kind of symbolism and expression. So that's what I'm talking about in talking about playing the Nazi card. And I'm going to focus on three key themes. Three things are going to structure my discussion now. Playing the Nazi card is abuse against Jews. It's a rather straightforward one to talk about. And I'll be off my script here and just give you a few instances of that. Secondly, the Nazi card is abuse against the collective memory of the Holocaust. I think that's quite a straightforward one. I'll be off script. But I think I need to go through the analytical footwork of the first two themes to get on to the third one, because this really is the issue uh, at the heart of the matter. That's when the Nazi card is manifest in discourse about Israel and Zionism. So the three things. Are you ready for me to start working, working through them? Okay, here's the, the first one on the Nazi card as abuse against Jews. You can see the time then, just rapidly going through my, through my script here. <laughs> this one is, is, is very straightforward. Little contention about this. Where, where, the Nazi, where the Nazi card is used in explicit, hateful abuse against Jews. The many incidents recorded by the Community Security Trust annually. Um, incidents that come to mind that I, that I uh, uh, talk about in, in the report um, on this research. Uh, the one that I can't show you as, as yet. Um, the type of incidents recorded are swastikas daubed on the walls of synagogues, Jewish schools, um, offensive uh, voicemail messages um, um, left on uh, synagogues, uh, the type of thing um, uh, that comes to mind, things that uh, I've looked at in police records, um, are things such as uh, Hitler was right, and you know, you know the type of thing that, uh, that, that people say. Um, incidents of abuse on, on the street, uh, in my analysis of anti-Semitic crimes, uh, hate, anti-Semitic hate crime on the street, uh, we can see the word um, uh, uh, Nazi abuse used against, uh, against victims, students in their dormitories and on campus, swastikas scratched on um, a university student's door, for instance, in their hall of residence, all of these examples, um, I haven't made them up, um, but so they come from crime reports and from the Community Security Trust reports. <coughs> I've just given you a snapshot of them. I'm sure you'll be familiar with these types of incidents. I'm just going over them very quickly. Now, in, in the UK, and it's the same in the United States as I understand it, where uh, these incidents involve uh, criminal incidents, um, daubing uh, a swastika on a synagogue door in Britain is an act of criminal damage. Um, yeah. Throwing any paint on a synagogue door will be an act of criminal damage and uh, probably won't be punishable by a thousand pound fine maximum if it was a first time offender. 
under uh, Britain's uh, so-called hate crime laws, that swastika would turn it into a racially aggravated um, act of criminal damage. In the US it would be called a hate crime, and the offender would get a higher penalty, um, probably a £2,000 fine. And so the extra penalty there is, is for the sentiment associated with the crime, uh, the racist, uh, anti-Semitic sentiment accompanying the crime. And that's how, that's how hate crime laws work. Are you, are you fairly familiar with the way the law, and they work that way in the United States. Now, I'd just like to think briefly what it is, why is it that such offences um, um, attract a higher penalty under the criminal law? It's because of the consequences. It's not a matter of offending people's sensibilities, but it's because of the hurts, the hurtful consequences inflicted by the anti-Semitic or with racist incidents, the racist aggravation behind them. Research evidence clearly shows, and I show some of that uh, in, in my book, um, Hate Crimes in the City. Look at evidence of the British Crime Survey, people who've reported racist incidents and compare them, people who've reported crimes um, that weren't racially motivated, and you compare racist against non-racially motivated crimes, you find the victims of such incidents reporting higher levels of post-traumatic stress-type symptoms. Anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, emotional disorders, and so on. These incidents, when they're targeted at an individual, survey evidence not only shows that uh, they have a negative emotional impact upon the individual, they also have a terroristic impact upon the communities, and there's a particular resonance there, in the case of Jewish communities, and using the swastika, that I'm sure I don't need to, uh, uh, to vocalise here. And they also um, have a wider impact upon community cohesion and commitment to equality and so on. Now these harms are recognised by legislatures in the United States and in Britain. I won't say much more about that. I do say a lot, a lot more about that in my script. But the key point is that offenders in these types of incidents are punished more harsh, harshly, not because of their opinion or their values, but because of the consequences, because of the hurts they inflict. And increasingly we can empirically document those hurts. There's a very interesting incident reported in the Jewish Chronicle uh, about six months ago, where a Jewish um, shopkeeper in North London um, called the police because another Jewish shopkeeper, his neighbour, um, called him a Nazi. Um, he, he used some uh, more profane, you know, common profane things, which I won't repeat here, um, but called him a Nazi. There was a dispute over a footpath outside and who was putting their produce where and so on. Apparently this had gone on for a long time, according to the report in the Jewish Chronicle. Called the police officer. The police officer came along, under British law, would have had to report it as uh, an anti-Semitic incident. Now this is one Jew calling another Jew a Nazi. And this type of case, I've just given you one case here, you might think of lots of other cases, indicates the hurt involved. So it's not only when um, the Nazi card is played against Jews by others, but it also, also hurts, and this shows the depth of the hurt, I would argue, when it's played by Jew against Jew. I could give you a number of examples um, of these types of incidents around the world. So let me move on to the second theme. 
these first two things are my analytical footwork to get into the third one, which I really want to focus on in my presentation. My second thing concerns the Nazi card played as abuse against the collective memory of the Holocaust. Holocaust denial is a playing of the Nazi card. It's a, it's a prominent example. It's a discursive act against Jews collectively in which the historical memory of the Nazi regime is invoked and used against Jews. And that's why I'm conceptualising it as a playing of, of the Nazi card. Can, can you see the point there? That, that also came out to me as a little bit convoluted. But just to, just to say that again, if I may, briefly. In Holocaust denial, the Nazi card is played in a discursive act against Jews by, by denying the historical facts of the Holocaust, by promoting the various conspiracy theories of the Holocaust, again, that I'm sure you'll all be familiar with. It's using this historical memory, it's invoking historical memory of the Nazi regime and using it against Jews. So I would argue that Holocaust denial is a discursive act of playing the Nazi card. Now, there are many arguments about why Holocaust denial is problematic. And again, I'm sure that many of you here will be uh, familiar with those arguments. But I want to focus on one key argument, a very earlier argument that's been significant for me in my thinking and is significant for the analysis here. That is, abuse of the collective memory of the Holocaust scratches deep wounds that are not yet healed over. So whilst not many people will question an assertion that distortion and misrepresentation of the historical facts of the Holocaust is insulting and offensive to the memory of those who perished, those who survived and their descendants, the harm of Holocaust denial goes much beyond insult and it scratches deep wounds that are not yet healed over. Now this was acknowledged in early legal judgments. Uh, I think of um, um, the West German, as it was then at the time, um, the, uh, the West German state, in one of the very first provisions in Europe against Holocaust denial in the 1970s, where in Germany it's outlawed what's there referred to as the Auschwitz-Luger Auschwitz or the Auschwitz lie, which prohibits defamation and denigration of deceased persons and aims to protect human dignity. It uh, made Holocaust denial a criminal offence, one of the first European states to do this. Now, I know that in the United States, in commitment to uh, uh, rights to freedom of expression and, and, and so on, there will be many objections to this type of, this type of provision. But could I just share with you some of the legal thinking um, about why this law was established in, the, in West Germany. The West German Federal Supreme Court that finally upheld the provisions following various legal challenges concluded the following. Now I'm quoting here, so um, I'm sorry I'm treating you a, a bit like I treat my students when I'm lecturing. If you can do your best to follow me as I, as I quote this, this legal judgment. Not the most... Um, um, enticing speech, but try and follow. 
what the, what the West German Federal Supreme Court concluded in 1979. It concluded, quote, that nobody has a protected right to make untrue allegations, end quote. And then it went on to say, quote, whoever tries to deny the truth of past events denies to every Jew the respect to which he is entitled. To the individual affected, this must appear as a continuation of discrimination against his group and therefore indirectly against his person. So the court ruled that an act of Holocaust denial is an ongoing act of discrimination against Jews. And in upholding the injunction against, uh, this was somebody who had painted graffiti, um, where, where they, in a wall in Berlin that said the murder of six million Jews was a Zionist swindle. The supposed murder of six million Jews was a Zionist swindle and a lie. The up court upheld the conviction and it said the following. Again, if you can bear with me on this, then I'll give you a break from, from these quotes. Quote, not the personal fates, but the historical events are the criterion which weighs upon the personality of every Jew in Germany and upon his personal and social relationship to his German fellow citizens. In my notes I underline this, so I'll try and underline it to you now. The terrible events have formed the personality of the citizens of Jewish origin who embody the past, even if they were not personally part of it. I'll leave the West German Federal Supreme Court there, and just put it into my own words. It's a very interesting ruling, a landmark ruling, one of the earliest rulings against Holocaust denial. And criminalization wasn't because of the offense. It was a conclusion that Holocaust denial is an ongoing act of discrimination. Why? Because the collective memory of the Holocaust is present in Jews in Germany, whether they were survivors, descendants, or descendants of, uh, of descendants. And that collective memory of the Holocaust is still very much alive and therefore Holocaust denial, by invoking that memory and attacking it, scratches very deep wounds indeed that are not yet healed. Now, I would argue that we can extend that reasoning about the hurts and the harms and the consequences inflicted by Holocaust denial to Jews outside of Germany, elsewhere, around the world. And I would also like to say, not only Jews, um, but to people like myself, and people who see the world in the same way. Are you still with me up, up to this point? Okay. Well, thank you for bearing with me, because now I get into the third, the third part of my, of my presentation, and you'll hear me scrabbling through my notes, through my script here, to deal with the final theme that provides the heart of the analysis and the contentious issue about playing the Nazi card against Israel and Zionism. I would argue that uh, you know, interpreting the Nazi card as abuse against Jews and the harms involved there is unproblematic. Few people would question or take issue with, with what I've said. Likewise, I think not many people would take issue um, with what I've said about the consequences and the hurts when the Nazi card is played as abuse against collective memory of the Holocaust. However, uh, many people would take issue, and, and, uh, and this is why we're, uh, uh, we focused on the topic. Many people would take issue when we talk about the Nazi card manifesting discourse about Israel and Zionism. 
So I'm going to focus on this in, in a little bit of depth. This is one of the most challenging components of anti-Semitic discourse in general. In this case, playing the Nazi card involves equating the Israeli state collectively, or the state embodied by its leaders or its military practices, with Nazis, Nazi Germany, genocidal actions of the Nazi regime. I'm assuming that you're all familiar with these, with these types of things. You've seen cartoons, you've read press reports, you've heard statements of, uh, of, of people. Can I just give you a few examples? Uh, you know, if we look at uh, uh, debates in the United Nations, some very contemporary uh, examples um, there, uh, coming from representatives of uh, Syria uh, and Lebanon. But to take me close to my home in the UK, you might have heard about Labour MP Una King in 2003. Following a visit to Gaza, wrote a commentary in The Guardian, sort of left of centre, very serious uh, newspaper, read by academics like me, um, in which she said, quote, the original founders of the Jewish state could surely not imagine the irony facing Israel today and escaping the ashes of the Holocaust. They have incarcerated another people in a hell similar in its nature, though not in its extent, to the Warsaw Ghetto. Conservative MP Andrew Dismore in the House of Commons in 2003 claimed that in the conflict in Lebanon, Israel was using the Nazis of the tactics, uh, sorry, using the tactics of the Nazis between 1939 and 40. Um, blitzkrieg and strafing civilians, according to uh, Andrew Dismore MP. Yes, he apologised about it uh, afterwards, about using such language. 2007, scholar. Hillary, prominent scholar Hilary Rose, one of the leaders of the academic boycott movement in Britain, stated in an article in the Guardian newspaper that the proposed boycott in uh, an article on the proposed boycott that Gaza had become, quote, a vast concentration camp. I could go on and on with examples. These are not just isolated examples. Many, many examples I could present to you from Britain and around the world. And just last week, at Goldsmiths College, um, the University of London, uh, where I did my uh, first, uh, my undergraduate degree, and Charles uh, was once a professor there. An event was held, well-attended event, uh, supported by the Student Union, in which Gaza was compared to the Warsaw Ghetto. So I think you get the picture. It looks like you do from the nods on the, uh, from some of you. Now, this is a potentially powerful discursive strategy. If you think about it, it's a very powerful discursive strategy because anything associated with the Nazis is condemned with unconditional moral indignation in most contemporary Western societies and many societies elsewhere. Playing the Nazi card, therefore, it brands the object brands the target, brands the object of the accusation with the stigma of absolute evil. As a discursive act, it, it has parallels with playing the Nazi card against identifiable persons in specific abuse, the things I, I related to in beginning my talk, because identifiable entities, Israeli political leaders, the Israeli state, Symbols of the state, such as the Israeli flag, are targeted. So it's like, in a way, painting a synagogue on a swastika dome. So the symbols of the state are, are targeted with this abuse. 
<coughs> and it also has clear parallels with discourses that abuse the collective historical memory of the Holocaust, because some claim that when the Nazi card is played against Israel and Zionism, it targets Jews collectively, Jews as a, as a collectivity. So I would argue that when the Nazi card is played against Israel and Zionism, it has clear parallels with these rather uncontentious types of playing the Nazi card. Now, some commentators have argued that this particular variant of the Nazi card has been, is a form of Holocaust inversion, whereby victims are cast as the perpetrators. Uh, uh, Gabriel Schoenfeld has described this as an extraordinary reversal, breathtaking way in which the victims of Nazism have been transformed into Nazis themselves by a distortion that is every bit as distant from historical reality and every bit as slanderous of Jewish memory as the work of Holocaust deniers. Some have claimed, without hesitation, that when the Nazi card is played against the Israeli state, its leaders, its military practices, or its founding ideology of Zionism, it's clearly anti-Semitic. Now with that claim, there we get into the problem and the war of words about this issue and the reason for this research project, and the heart of the analysis. And you might be familiar with this war of words that has broken out over the matter, and the, the, intelle or the, the intellectual cul-de-sac, uh, uh, as I would characterise it. Where those who, uh, against those who claim that um, the playing of the Nazi card against uh, the Israeli state and, and uh, also Zionism is anti-Semitic, some argue that they have to speak loudly, they have to speak trenchantly to get their concerns heard. Um, a number of prominent Jews, uh, and some in Britain, have played the Nazi card in this way and they argue how can they be anti-Semitic? They are speaking loudly to express their, their own concerns and this is one way of getting their concerns heard. And they further argue that the label anti-Semitism is being slung against them as a card against them. An anti-Semitism card is being played against those who sling the Nazi card to intimidate them into silence and to su suppress their criticism of the Israeli state and if it's the Zionist uh, uh, project in general, of Zionism in, in general. I'm sure you're familiar with, these, with these, this type of debate that's going on. And it's going, I'd argue, going round and round and round. Um, he said, she said, name calling, and that's the level that the debate has been up to this point. Now, I would suggest that we need a way out of this and focusing. Not mine. Uh, that's, that's not me, I think it must be a cab passing by again. I'll, I'll, I'll keep going. That Focusing on the, the hurts and the consequences is rather more productive and it takes us away from some of the politicking and finds a discursive way out of this matter. And in the last five minutes, can you take five more minutes from me? Okay. What I normally say to my students, and forgive me for, uh, I'm not really treating all my students, but I find myself repeating myself, I normally say to them, but at this stage of the presentation, this is where I need your attention most of all, and when you're least able to give it to me. 
So please try your best uh, in this last five minutes. And you'll see that I'm referring to my script. If it sounds like I'm reading, just say something to me, and I'll come, come off the script. I'd argue that it's neither useful nor necessary to try to get inside the heads of those who use such discourse against Israel and Zionism, those who compare the Israeli state, Israel's leaders, etc., with Nazis in Nazi Germany, it's neither useful nor necessary to try to get inside their heads and argue that they're anti-Semitic, debate whether they're anti-Semitic, allege that they're anti-Semitic. That's just taking us into that cul-de-sac and keeping us in the cul-de-sac because it's the consequences of the words that they use that matter. Abhorrence and protest against the policies, practices and leaders of the Israeli state can be expressed in numerous forceful and trenchant ways, as they can against any other state, none of which would be anti-Semitic. But when criticism is voiced by playing the Nazi card and drawing parallels with the genocidal eliminationist atrocities committed by the Nazi regime, then many Jews and non-Jews who view Israel and Zionism as central to Jewish identity will regard the discourse as unquestionably anti-Semitic. Many of those who engage in such discourse would deny the accusation of anti-Semitism. And you've probably heard such denials. Indeed, you know, some will not be motivated by hatred or animus towards Jews or have anti-Semitic intentions. Their motivation might be to draw attention to their concerns about human rights abuses and the excesses and casualties of war. As Richard Falk, and uh, uh, some of you know the statements of, uh, of Richard Falk on, on this matter, uh, and that's what he claimed. That's why and uh, when he admitted that his use, choice of words was somewhat insensitive, um, he was again arguing that he had to speak loudly to get his concerns heard. Well, as with the other variants, the two variants of the Nazi car that I've mentioned, irrespective, and this is my key point, irrespective of whether it's labelled anti-Semitic, such discourse has consequences. And it's the consequences, not the anti-Semitism, I would argue, that matters. And these consequences, whether intended or not. The fact, you know, the fact that perpetrators of incidents against Jews, on the streets for instance, are far less discriminating in their sentiments than those who play the Nazi card against the Israeli state might claim, might give the latter pause for thought about their responsibilities that accompany their rights to express criticism in a particular way. Now, my analysis of uh, hate crimes against Jews, uh, I carried out analysis of hate crimes against Jews reported to London, London's Metropolitan Police Service. There are quite a number of cases where offenders, uh, you know, did Nazi salutes, Zieg Heil, this type of thing, said, uh, you know, disgraceful things about the Holocaust uh, to their victims when they were targeting them. And therefore, because such offenders are generally not very sophisticated in their thinking, not very nuanced, those who use uh, this type of discourse against the Israeli state, even though they might claim good intentions, should, there should be good enough reason for pause for thought about the responsibilities of their discourse. Furthermore, when some critics play the Nazi card, it's played in such a way that it would involve splitting very fine hairs indeed. 
to decide whether or not their words demonize all Jews collectively or they are targeting specific policies and practices of the Israeli state. They have a responsibility too to consider the impact of the words that they use. Now playing the Nazi card against Israel as a state clearly demonizes the state in the minds of many people who encounter such discourse. But the fundamental issue at stake concerning the question of whether playing the Nazi card against Israel and Zionism demonizes all Jews collectively and is therefore anti-Semitic depends upon the degree to which Israel and Zionism are viewed as essential components of Jewish identity. It sounded to me as if I was reading from my script there, so I'm going to come off script and uh, finish off with a, with a few words about this. That for those people for whom Israel is fundamental to Jewish identity, playing the Nazi card against Israel and the demonization it involves will be seen as an assault against the core of Jewish identity. And it's likely to be seen to defame and demonize all Jews as a collectivity. And so those people who see Jews and non-Jews as Israel and Zionism as being at the heart of Jewish identity, playing the Nazi card against the Israeli state, will be seen to be defaming the heart, defaming Jewish identity, unquestionably anti-Semitic. For those for whom Israel and Zionism are, are not fundamental to Jewish identity, then demonization of Israel may solely be regarded as an attack on Israel as a state and not on Israel as the collective Jew. Let me just give you an example of this, this latter perspective. Uh, Anthony Lerman, uh, for instance, um, the uh, current executive director of the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, uh, where I have my fellowship, um, and, uh, and where I resigned in 2005, and uh, Tony Lerman took, took over from my collaborator Barry Cosman at the time, argued, uh, argued the following. For decades, the Zionism was supported by only a minority of Jews. The rest were either indifferent or manifestly opposed to the whole idea of the Jewish state. Anti-Zionism was therefore a perfectly respectable position to hold, and one that continues to be held today by hundreds of thousands of strictly orthodox Jews and many secular Jews with left liberal perspectives. From this perspective, the problem then for another critic, Jenny Bourne, um, who is uh, one of the editors of uh, a radical left uh, journal in Britain, academic journal, Race and Class, argued that it's the supporters of Israel, not Israel's critics, who conflate Jewry in the state of Israel, I'm quoting here, who conflate Jewry in the state of Israel, which in turn enables them to claim that any Nazi metaphor applied to Israel applies equally to Jews. Jen Bourne is arguing and it's the supporters of Israel who are creating the problem by conflating Israel with Jewish identity. And therefore, you know, they're, they're, that's where they're leading us into this uh, argument that playing the Nazi card against Israel is anti-Semitic, where Bourne will clearly, the implication will be that it's, that it's not. Well, and you might be pleased that I'm finishing off here, and this is really where I need maximum attention for you, uh, from you, uh, in my closing words, and then I look forward to... Uh, uh, comments and questions from me. 
These types of arguments I, I've just um, cited and quoted to you, unfortunately, I would argue these types of arguments and the counter-arguments against them have led down an intellectual cul-de-sac with the consequent need for new thinking of the type that we're, that we're looking to find, to find a way out of this cul-de-sac. The point is, this is the point, the point is that labelling the playing of the Nazi card against Israel and Zionism as anti-Semitic, even though, though it's perceived by many to be so, leads to a discursive dead end. The matter at stake, and the matter that more people will be more certain about, is that the playing of the Nazi card in this way hurts. It hurts by invoking painful collective memories for Jews, and by using those memories against them, and it hurts Jews irrespective of whether they perceive Israel and Zionism to be essential to their Jewish identity. That's what we argue. The harmful consequences of equating Israel to Nazi Germany will be obvious to most people. Deep wounds are scratched hard. It's hardly a cause for wonder then that the motives of those who engage in such discourse, even if they are Jews themselves, will be questioned. Given the obvious hurts inflicted, they should know better. Well, to finish off, in the last minute or so, actually, could I take two minutes? Okay. Three, thank you. So if Charles is okay with that, I will take three minutes, thank you. I've discussed three different variants of playing the Nazi card. I've given you very brief uh, overviews of them, and uh, when you read uh, the, the published version, when it comes into the public domain, hopefully, um, if you're interested, you'll read about uh, the twists and turns of the analysis in far more detail. But, in brief, these three variants of playing the Nazi card, apart from the fact that the Nazi card is involved there, the one fundamental common denominator between them, apart from the invocation of painful collective memories of the Nazi atrocities, is that they all result in harmful consequences. They all result in harmful consequences, whether we conclude that they're anti-Semitic or not. The most contentious of the three variants, as I mentioned, involves playing the Nazi card against Israel and its founding movement Zionism. And drawing attention to the consequent harms in such a case, you know, shouldn't be intended um, shouldn't be intended or taken as an attempt to suppress criticism of Israel and its military practices. Instead, it's a call not to use particular words. That's all. It's a call not to use particular words, even in the most trenchant criticism, because some words wound. Most people will surely agree with that. And most people will surely agree that that's a very reasonable appeal when they understand the wounds and the hurts involved. That's what we're hoping for, that that reasonable appeal will be heard. Well, part of my title was uh, for this talk uh, was about countering anti-Semitic discourse and countering the Nazi card. 
I'm not going to say much about these and because uh, I welcome your views on this and uh, seminars are working occasions so I, I would very much welcome your views and to learn from those <coughs> about how we actually challenge uh, the Nazi card. Um, I've, I've been very much in favour of uh, criminalising particular forms of hate speech and criminalising hate crimes but uh, there's little support for that in the United States, little support for that amongst um, Jewish communal leaders in the UK and that's really a non-starter even though we could claim that many of the incidents I've talked about are acts of defamation uh, with their hurtful consequences. Uh, there are various other ways of doing it, refutation, arguing against the, uh, the comparisons and the equations that are made. If you look at the commentary over the Goldsmiths College seminar last week there's some, there's some lovely examples of refutation there on, on the internet against the speakers. There's regulation Codes of uh, practice and conduct for journalists and newspapers, perhaps. Education, and the way that we should uh, train and the, the topic and topics and curricula we, we might introduce to university students, especially given the particular climate, especially the case in Britain and elsewhere in Europe, uh, the movement to boycott uh, uh, academic connections with Israel. But the thing that interests me, me most of all is the second point, verbalisation. Because I would argue that as well as words wounding, words can heal. And I would suggest, and I very much welcome your views about this, that articulating, the process of articulating these hurts, the process of, of making such hurts evident, the process of unravelling these hurts, in the type of way that I have done, but in much more detail, the point, process of pointing out these hurts, is a process, begins a process of ameliorating these hurts by demonstrating to others the hurts involved. And I might be very naive about this, but I would hope that articulating such hurts is an appeal to reason. And who could argue against that? Thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to your comments. So, but this is, a, I think, a thing to, to, to reflect on, 
Um, what does it mean? If the Arabs, they have not used to play Nazi card, for decades they have been ordinary Holocaust deniers, but now, the last couple of years, especially Hamas and others out of these extremist groups, they are not playing East Berlin Nazi card like the Western world, the left wing or whatever anti-Sinus groups also do. But Iran doesn't, as far as I see. So maybe this is a point to, to think about. Yes, yes. Uh, can I respond to that, or will we take you know, more questions, Charles? There, there are many points that I, that I could respond to, perhaps in conversation, uh, would, would do afterwards. Um, the, the Iranian exception, I think, is, is a very interesting one, and uh, I'm not sure what to say about that at this point, to, to be honest. Um, but the, the, um, the use of the Nazi card um, by um, you know, a political project by uh, surrounding states against Israel and by a left-wing opposition against Israel it's, um, it's a very powerful, discursive strategy, isn't it? Because it, it brands the target as ultimate evil. And we know what needs to be done with, with ultimate evil, don't we? And, and you know, the consequences, um, if you think it through, um, are, are quite serious in terms of, in terms of that allegation. Would be would be triggered, and, uh, and and they would be clearly clearly different instances because um, you know we could argue that many other examples of you know oppressive regimes if you know if a person is arguing such many other examples could be used um, for those who want to criticise the Israeli state in that way and, and why Nazi why Nazi Germany that's that's the question to to be asked and I think there you know there are, we we might think of that. Different regimes would have uh, a different kind of iconic status and different hurts that would be inflicted. And um, uh, the apartheid, uh, the label apartheid, uh, is also laden with particular hurts, isn't it? Really, you know, um, perhaps not on the same scale of playing the Nazi card, but playing the apartheid card clearly triggers particular hurts um, for people. Um, around the world, and it's very clear what's what's being done there. Um, but you know, we could think of other oppressive regimes, um, where we you know we might think of a, a ladder, a descending ladder of, of hurts that, that could be used. I think the point is that uh, the Nazi card, you know, obviously for obvious reasons, has a specific, particular, deeply hurtful resonance where where Jews are concerned. Yeah, I get that, and I agree, and I guess, and this isn't. Your study, but your study makes me think of another phenomenon, which is once you get into this um, harsh criticism of Israel, in comparison to those situations, if, if you just say, well, it's only the, the Nazi part where it becomes, where we have to consider the first, and, and where it's not, then 
you're sort of suggesting that there's a point at which you have to determine when the discourse is perfect. Because any discourse could be determined. <coughs> Nazi discourse, I mean, the comparison to Nazi discourse is, is easy. Um, and then it becomes slippery when you're at a lower threshold. Yeah, very, very. It may or may not be anti-Semitic, and it may or may not matter whether you call it anti-Semitic. But the problem is similar. It's just slip, more slippery. Yeah. It's very hurtful indeed. I could just respond to, to that one, Charles, because I, you know, you got really the crux of the uh, of the issue here. Um, because the hurt is not just um, it's not a matter of offending sensibilities or offence. So you know, if we use other. Um, you know, we, we drew comparisons with Mugabe's Zimbabwe. You know, what's a, you know, what's a kind of comparison we might want to draw? Uh, we can think of offence and insult caused by using those hints. But the crux of the argument is that using the Nazi God, it's, the issue is not offence and insult. By all means, you know, they're inflicted. But it's hurt. And it's the particular hurt. It's those particular harmful consequences with that particular label um, that's specific um, to Jews um, and to Zionists. And, and that's a, a different level of, it's, it's about hurt, particular hurt, um, as against offending sensibilities. Uh, do you think that the purpose of the Nazi card use is, that, is just to cause hurt, or are there goals or uh, there's a purpose beyond that, that is not just personal or, uh, or, or uh, touches the feelings. You know, um, unless I start speculating, and it would only be, you know, it would only be speculation, uh, I, I sort of rather use the words of those who um, defend uh, or mitigate the use of the Nazi card. And as I was saying earlier, uh, you know, Richard Falk, for instance, uh, Admitted that he could have used, it could have been more sensitive, but at the same time he also said um, that he, he felt he had to speak loudly to be heard. And other defenders um, of using the, this kind of discourse have, have said said similar things that um, they have to use this language um, to be able to get their criticism heard. They feel it's the only way that they can get it heard. Now we, we can argue against that. Um, now, just take it without speculating about their motives, because you know I think much of the debate has been sp speculation about the motives of such people, and that will just get us nowhere. Trying to trying to dig around in the minds of such persons, and so I'm trying to take it away from that and look at the consequences of the words they they use, and in focusing on the hearts, uh, you know, we suggest how more reasonable can you get than that. But Sure. To, to your response to the question, isn't though is it important to look at the agenda of the people playing the card? So Iran is very clear. The skinheads or Nazi fascist groups in London on the east end of London, whatever, their agendas are clear. So do you take into consideration the agenda and the purpose of this political action? Uh, uh, not in this particular project, no, um, because I think the. Um, the most, you know, those examples that you just gave are uh, are rather clear, clear cut, aren't they? Uh, the whole problem, the whole debate about this, um, are those who are putting themselves forward as uh, advocates, defenders of human rights, supporters of human rights, and so on. So you know they are um, working 
and uh, under the banner of human rights agenda. Now, you know, I think we can only speculate about, about their agenda, and therein lies the problem, that we get into this war of words. And what we're trying to do is find a way out from that. Uh, and it's not just the case of sidestepping it, um, but we're suggesting it's a potentially constructive way out of that. Um, because even those who are arguing on the, you know, let, let's just say, you know, they are genuinely committed to human rights, and they feel that this is the, the best way that they can have you know, propose their cause. How can they argue against? And how can they argue in favour of continuing to use such discourse when the hurts of such discourse are articulated to them? So if I can push a little further. Sure. I think it was Martin Luther King who said he's not worried about the, the actions of a few bad people. He's more concerned about the inaction of the vast majority of good people. So if the liberal intellectuals using and believing, perhaps genuinely, in the human rights agenda. If the results of not coming to defend Israel against the onslaught of radical Islamicism, not Arabs and not Muslims, but radical Islamicism and their agenda, and the extreme right and the extreme left in Europe, and they're sort of acquiescing, and Israel is sold up, the result of their inaction results in a very clear action. So how, does, how would that figure in your analysis? Uh, and are you referring to, uh, would you, within that, uh, Charles, would you be referring so to, you, to, to the Nazi card played against other states, like, like Iran, for instance? Well, I think the agenda of radical Islamists, radical Sunnis, radical Shiites, Iran, Al-Qaeda, Jihad, Hezbollah, and others, Hamas, they're very clear. And when people like uh, the editor of Racing Class Born and, and other intellectuals who sort of do a postmodern critique and sort of critique away the reality or or ignore a reactionary agenda which is gaining power and strength in the Islamic world. Um, the results of their inaction results in, in, in has repercussions in, in Muslim societies and Arab societies and, and, and perhaps Israel's future in the region. So their inaction or they're just focusing on say Israeli abuses of human rights leads to very dire consequences. Yes. Directly. Yes. No, in, indeed. And uh, there are a number of things there that you said. I'll, I'll just I'll just unpick a bit because um, you know one of the arguments that you'll be familiar with is that um, um, a sort of narrow focus on on Israel in terms of uh, human rights uh, criticism. The question is asked why just Israel or why primarily Israel and um, uh, why not um, be an equal opportunity to critic and, and single out all, all sorts of other, other states. Um, you know, I, I think that's, um, you know, I, I can buy that argument, but I think it's also a tricky argument. Social movements develop, social movements grow, there's a particular social movement around Israel. I, I can see why, uh, why some people would focus, where, why they are sort of sole issue advocates. Wouldn't necessarily make them anti-Semitic, some of those people might have good intentions, someone clearly would be anti-Semitic. But I think you know, just having a sole focus in, in terms of criticism on Israel, um, I think you know, it can be understood in some cases. But of course, um, not drawing attention to, to other human, uh, you know, focusing on Israel at the expense of uh, other nation states is hugely problematic. Uh, and um, indeed, 
And, you know, some have used uh, the label Nazi against, um, against other states. And, you know, context matters. In some circumstances, we might think that the, the historical illusion is more accurate when it's being used against other, other states, perhaps Iran, for instance. And the historical memory is clearly very different. So context does matter in, in, in this respect. Thank you. Uh, I have a little bit of similar question as Josh had. When you said that there can be a criticism that is actually not playing the Nazi card and doesn't have to be anti-Semitic, I was wondering, having lived the past 10 years in the UK, whether you can see that there might be um, basically a code that actually doesn't need the obvious Nazi card anymore, but functions just in the same way it is understood by now in the discourse as um, yeah, content-wise, it will be the same. You know, how I mean that? There's, there's more than a code. Um, there's a code and there's far more than that, um, especially in British academia. I can't name names or name places, of course. Um, but I had a, uh, um, a colleague, let's say, sometime in the past, you can see I'm being very, uh, very woolly about this, um, who, um, a senior academic, um, who said to me in conversation, um, Israelis, um, his, it wasn't Israelis, um, his words were, the Jews are worse than the Nazis. Let's talk about Israel. Not only acting like Nazis, worse than the Nazis. Can you imagine that? Worse than the Nazis. Um, this is a colleague um, uh, saying it to another colleague, and for all I know, you know, this person thought, he or she thought I was Jewish. I've sat in staff meetings where we've had um, an application for a master's program from a former Israeli police officer and chuckles breaking out um, in the selection committee that yes, they want to come and study criminology to learn how to beat up and talk to people more effectively. Uh, I've sat in the common room in the refectory where it's the consensus is evident and this is where it comes back to the, to the code here. There's nothing explicit, the consensus is highly evident in the conversation at the dinner table or the lunch table, and to try and stand up and speak out and contradict colleagues um, in those circumstances is, is highly difficult. And I'm ashamed to say that many occasions I was very timid and didn't speak up and speak out against my colleagues uh, when I heard those conversations going on. Can I ask a follow-up? What would you do in your study with this um, this context, this discourse that isn't actually, where would it fit in if, you know, if it isn't the obvious um, Nazi comparison? It's really problematic, you know, in terms of finding a way through. I think the, the old parliamentary inquiry report focused a great deal on this topic, this discourse. Uh, the Community Security Trust report did. What we're trying to do is, is here, um, or we like to think, is it right? Uh, time will tell if the analysis bears out like this. Um, that we've focused on a particularly uh, prominent manifestation of uh, discourse, anti-Semitic or not, a particular prominent of, of, uh, manifestation of discourse. It's a particular problem at the moment, it's a very explicit problem, and that we can clearly address this one by identifying these herds. When we get into the less explicit ones, then we get back into that cul-de-sac of claim and counterclaim, and how do we find a way out of this? 
we thought we'd start with those that we can knock down. Uh, this, is, this one's still difficult to knock down, but we'll try to start with this one first. So just as a, 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 a personal comment, somebody who's lived and studied and taught in the UK, we used to talk about being intimidated or speaking timidly. I think the environment is, is much more difficult than here. I think people may not appreciate how difficult it is to speak of. So I think your, your research in that context is so important. Uh, I don't know if people should be lost on people here. You know, I was like listening to you when you said that uh, words can hurt and uh, words can heal. And I think it's very, very important that one should uh, you know, uh, very much be careful with uh, you know, what they say and how they say things. And I totally agree with you. But going back to the Nazi crowd, uh, you know, I, I was just sitting and thinking, what is the motivation of the people that you know uh, had to generate this new device? Uh, um, and in a way, I think it is uh, going also to what was mentioned about uh, using the apartheid, also as another tool. Um, I actually, I actually, I mean, given the fact that Israel is not an apartheid, there is. Uh, there are judges, Arab judges, and uh, Arabs in the military. There are problems, definitely, but you cannot see Israel either as a Nazi country or an apartheid. But I think, for me, it looks like there is a motivation behind those initiatives to actually paint Israel in some kind of a demonic uh, way. And uh, as you mentioned before, too, in one of those answers, uh, there is a bias, there, there is a double standard of uh, judging uh, civil rights issues that are done in Israel uh, to other places in the world. I mean, uh, we all heard what happened in China with the distinct organs from different people, etc. So uh, I just, uh, you know, uh, for me, the, the double standards, the, the demonization, it seems like, you know, uh, same old, maybe a new, a new shape of the same old basic anti-Semitism. Yeah. I would agree with you <laughs> in, many, in many instances. The problem with that, though, <laughs> is that, again, we get into the, the realm of claim and counterclaim and, uh, and, and this, this cul-de-sac. And there's a person here dying to come in, I'll just say a few words, a uh, few more words in, in response to this one. Uh, and that is, it's not a new phenomenon. Um, and the plague of the Nazi card in this way, we can see it in the media going back to more than 40 years, to uh, 1967 um, um, business. So, you know, it's four decades old, this, uh, this phenomenon of, of uh, labelling the Israeli state in this way. It's certainly not a new thing. Playing the apartheid card is a softer, softer variant. Uh, and I like to think, well, it sounds odd saying I like to think, but uh, uh, I, I, I suspect that some of those um, who uh, might be more committed to, uh, genuinely committed to, to concerns about human rights and have, they themselves recognise uh, the problems and the hurts by using the Nazi card, um, use the apartheid card instead. <laughs> To try, to try and draw attention um, to, to the problem. Yeah. Um, I have a question about your, um, your criterion of a hurtful consequence as um, 
of placement for an analysis of the intent and all of that. And what my concern is, is that it might backfire. That let's say somebody wants to analyze the roots of um, Islamic terrorism and they go back to Islamic religious sources. I can just hear somebody saying, well, good, we'll stop using the term Nazi to, you know, to describe Israel, but then you can't talk about religion as a source of terroristic behavior because it's too hurtful to attack, to say something about the Quran, or it's too hurtful to say something about the Prophet. And I'm wondering, where exactly is this going to lead if we start to eliminate speech and, and you know, police debates on the basis of the uh, hurtful consequences, especially in our hypersensitive society where people are hurt by all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a very good question. And um, let me say that uh, the argument that I'm putting to you is not an argument for what some call grievance politics. Uh, well, we can think of these hurts as acts of defamation. We have to frame these hurts as, as acts of defamation. And uh, in Britain, um, under civil law, that would be defined as um, um, untruthful accusations um, with harmful consequences. Now, uh, we might think of um, an accurate, truthful parallels that can be made, um, um, but still have uh, harmful, harmful consequences. And um, strictly speaking, wouldn't be acts of acts of defamation. And here, very clearly, we're talking about acts, you know, uh, clear acts of defamation. Up that, yeah. um, if, if you're not going to do it through the court system, which you said you were kind of giving up your criminalization, sure. then this is not going to be taking place with with rules of evidence and with some some judge, but rather it's going to become. Um, codes of speech, and, and that in, in, the, in the United States, the, some of those things can become kind of oppressive. Yeah. And everybody claims everything is untrue, and so then, then you're not really getting out of your cul-de-sac, but you're back in it, arguing about whether it's true or not, yeah. or defamatory or not. Yes. No, I, I, see, I see that's a very important, a very important point. But I, I think um, you know, empirically, um, document, documenting empirically. Um, uh, demolishing the inaccuracies of, of these kinds of illusions um, are rather straightforward you know, to do. So the, the untruthful, inaccurate nature can be can, can be documented. Uh, sorry, the, the question I, I would ask, and my name is, is I'm just exposing my own thinking. I don't have an answer for this because at the heart of this, the question I've always asked myself, um, and please forgive me by what I'm going to say. Um, and because I, I, uh, I don't want to offend anybody here, but as an analyst thinking through, I think through, what if Israel was acting um, as Nazi Germany? You know, in, in, think about that worst case. You know, just think about that. And, and how would we regard um, such use of discourse then? I'm not sure. But I think that the historical accuracy and the validity is an important matter. Uh, in, in treating this as defamation. I'm, I'm interested in the differences in uh, hate crimes between the United States and Great Britain. I worked for the Anti-Defamation League for a number of years and a number of times. And that was one of the organizations that was instrumental in writing model hate crimes laws and helping to get hate crimes laws passed in many of the states. In the United States, speech is protected by the First Amendment. So in the example you gave early in your talk about a Jew 
calling another Jew a Nazi yeah. or anything else. There's nothing that can be done about that in the United States. And I would be the person who would get the call from the person called the Nazi, and I would have to tell that person it's not illegal because it's speech. But if said Jew put a swastika on the door of the other one, then that is criminal because uh, it's vandalism. And it's a hate crime because it's against a protected group of people. How much of the hate speech itself is uh, really taken as a crime? Are the police arresting people for their speech? Are there prosecutions for the speech? Or is it just something that's on the books and not really effective? Police in the UK, some police forces have been very confused about the matter in, in the UK uh, because our hate crimes laws are uh, relatively more recent provisions compared to the United States. And they have been. Those are only about a decade or so old. 1998 was the first, mm -hmm. first one, provisions against racially aggravated offences. Um, you know, and there have been some silly cases uh, where people have been arrested um, for saying things to their neighbours, and of course the tabloid press <coughs> reveal these cases and talk about political correctness. Uh, speech can only be um, um, prosecuted uh, in the UK um, as an act of intentional harassment. And so the prosecution would need to prove uh, that the person targeted was in fear of imminent violence. And they'd need to use some objective evidence, a threatening posture of the... You know, have there been cases that have been successfully proven? Quite a number of cases um, like that. A uh, substantial number, uh, it's a guesstimate, about, uh, about a third of all cases, mm -hmm. uh, I think, fall under that category. Uh, the type of discourse that you know, I've, I've been talking about here, especially around uh, um, Israel and Zionism, uh, certainly couldn't be prosecuted under, uh, 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 under British law. And uh, there's certainly no desire to do so, and especially amongst um, uh, Jewish communal leaders, there's no desire to do so. Uh, there's a strong movement against Holocaust denial laws, for instance, even though the UK is, is constantly being pushed, pulled by the European Union to try and fall in line. There's a strong resistance against it. Just one last thing, because the, the US uh, case is, uh, is, is very important, because uh, our civil servants you know, did some comparative policy analysis, and uh, they did what uh, us academics did. They did comparative policy learning, and they looked at um, experience in the United States. And what they found uh, was that there are very few prosecutions for hate crimes in the United States. And the problem is, because of, um, that's because in many instances, the prosecution has to prove motivation. And this is relevant to what I've just said. It's very difficult to prove um, what was in a person's mind, let alone that what was in their mind motivated their acts. It's very difficult to prove indeed. And you look at courts in general in the criminal law, all sorts of mitigating circumstances are brought in by the defence and accepted by courts. Motivation is very difficult indeed. The new Labour government in 1998 had an alternative route for uh, prosecution of, uh, of anti-Semitic, racist offenders in general. And for hate crimes, it was either motivation or aggravation. So, and most offenders are, are convicted under this, this second um, route, which uh, the offender, it simply has to be approved that the offender uttered racist abuse, I think anti-Semitic abuse at the time, immediately before, during, or immediately after committing the act. And objective evidence has to be proven that those words were uttered. It doesn't have to be proven that they motivated the act. So long as those, there is evidence that those words were uttered, that's enough to secure conviction. And um, 
I think about 90% of the convictions under our hate crime laws are under. And that recognises that it's, it's not the motivating thoughts, that, not the motivating impulses or the opinions that are at issue, it's the consequences of the act. And the act, with the accompaniment of those sentiments, whether they motivated the act or not, have empirically demonstrable, I demonstrate them in the book, have empirically demonstrable harmful consequences for the act. Uh, I feel one aspect is missing. Nobody says uh, the Gaza Strip is like the Soviet Gulag. Mm -hmm. The fact that the uh, murderers of six million Jews, uh, uh, that, that the, the surviving Jews and, and, and Israelis in, in particular, are compared with the murderers of Jews, I think is something that should not be underestimated in its, in its effect and in its importance in this discourse. And I also feel because we all recognize that uh, Nazi Germany is uh, not a legitimate uh, way to go, by using that, Israel is delegitimized. Delegit de and I think this is, is, is very, very important. I perhaps didn't stress that enough in my presentation, it's, uh, uh, we stress that very strongly in, the, um, in, in our writing, that um, it's an act of demonization, absolute demonization and delegitimization. Uh, uh, I used against the victims, I think is, 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 is critical in my, in my way of thinking. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, yeah, I want to uh, continue uh, what a lot said about uh, and to talk a little bit about the basic assumption of the discourse, that the discourse could wound, that the discourse could, could heal. So as a psychologist, I really, you know, I give a lot of respect to words, but also to behavior. And I think that um, I mean, the discipline that really like, put too much honor into words is really dangerous because it's not only about words and it's not only about emotions. I mean, and as a psychologist, I really have a lot of honor to emotions as well, but I think the consequences as much um, Severe, are much more severe because it's not only about emotions, it's, it's like um, biases in judgment, like it creates biases in judgment and it leads to behavior. And so, um, and, and this is the problem, the behavior, the consequences, it's not, and so I wonder, I mean, I know that there are some countries that, that there are limitations of, in freedom of expression and maybe this could be a, a good way to cope with it because if you start uh, dealing with the motives, it's an endless, you know, it's endless. Yes. And, um, and and so like de defining like words related with Holocaust as out of the law could be maybe like and, and then there's no need to negotiate what was the motive which exactly. is endless and it takes a lot of efforts and it's like exactly. useless eventually and but I really have a, a specific problem with the discipline that like like the discourse the discourse is words I mean okay so words is just words and what is like we have reality uh, people are wounded people die people kill people I get you know, and, and so we need to with this. Yes, and was that the type of behavior that, um, that, that you're referring to? Yeah, it's not an attack. I only say that it's like, it's a, it's like you wounded yourself by using the discourse, like putting the discourse as something which is really high value, right. and then right. sometimes we can, we can just forget about reality. Sure, but, but the problem is, um, um, you know, in terms of that reality and behavior, uh, the problem is uh, proving the causal connection uh, between words uttered 
and people's actions. So the uh, work could be the behavior. This is what I say. That the when, once you uh, you decide that the word is the behavior. That's that's right. That's right. And that's why framing is this, uh, this communicative action. But these words, um, you know, are not only words, not only discourse, but they are acts. These are speech acts. These are acts in themselves. And. Uh, Again, you know, perhaps I should have uh, emphasised that more strongly, and we say that in, in the writing, that we're regarding these words as deeds. These are uh, communicative action. These are discursive acts in themselves. Yeah, and also, there's a famous uh, quote that uh, the concentration camps didn't begin uh, with the works; they began with words. Mm -hmm. So words are very important. So, Paul, thank you very much. You really engaged us for a really good seminar. And, uh, so happy Thanksgiving. Our next seminar is in two weeks um, with uh, Professor Sion from NYU who's coming. She's a, a young, extraordinary scholar. So hope you can be there. It'll be 4th of December. Yeah.